Where you are, let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, we hear this report of the resurrection of our Lord. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. He has been raised. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole, and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'd like to ask that you'd help us, because we cannot have eyes to see unless you give us eyes to see through the inner working power of you indwell us with your spirit and guide us into all truth in Jesus name amen this is abundantly odd it is uh, i'm i'm 15 years and 2 days into being your senior pastor and this is the first holy week let alone the first Resurrection Sunday, where I've said, He is risen to a small group of production staff that are gathered to make sure that you can watch through a a Facebook Live video. I'm not that tech savvy to even really know how to set it all up. I'm glad we've got people here that can do that, but it's a very small group in keeping with the suggestions of the governing authorities. And we are uh, trying our best to exercise our religious liberty on the one hand, but on the other hand, a love of neighbor, not wanting this virus to spread. And also, in addition to that, oops, not my water over. In addition to that, we're wanting to honor the governing authorities, which is something that Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 tells us to do. And in addition to all that, we're grieving because we can't simply do the ordinary means of grace gatherings that we do where dozens of things happen where we encourage each other. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? 
What did you get out of that scripture this week? Now, you can do that virtually, and a host of providers have made things like Zoom and, of course, Google Meet's free anyway, but they've made these platforms free so that we can talk and interact digitally. But you know, as well as I do, it's not the same as being in person. And we long for the day that we can be in person. And we, we wouldn't do this, this uh, disbanding, if it wasn't a once-in-a-century kind of a thing. I mean, it's been a hundred years since churches have voluntarily accommodated the suggestion of the governing authorities that they, as ecclesial authorities, would disband for the common good, for the love of neighbor, for the elderly, so they don't catch a disease, hopefully, so that they don't catch that virus, so that they don't perish. We love our elderly in this church enough to say if it would help them, even if our immune systems might be able to take it, we'll postpone gathering for a while in order to help them. But we know we can't do it indefinitely. And we know that we can't honor a governing authority that tells us not to meet indefinitely. The early Christians were considered some of the very best citizens in the Roman Empire because they were willing to suffer for their faith, but they never stopped meeting. Even when Christianity was outright forbidden, when it was looked at as treasonous against the Roman authorities, the churches would meet in the catacombs when they weren't supposed to take care of the little ones, instead of practicing the killing of the littlest ones among them, they would gather them up and they would take care of them. It's what Christians have been known for. It's what our fathers and mothers in the faith have been known for since the very, very beginning. And they've also been known for gathering on the Lord's Day because that's the day that Jesus arose. After the Jewish Sabbath, the next morning, the women were concerned that because of the, the rush to bury Jesus on Good Friday, that he hadn't been properly taken care of and adorned, and so they were coming in to tend his body, to honor him as a friend, as a teacher. And they found out he was so much more than a friend and a teacher. He conquered the grave. He ushered in the death of death. Think about it. He ushered in the death of death. Death is dead because of what happened early Sunday morning. He topsy-turvied the powers that be because Women's testimony in the first century was not worth much. If a concocted story was to be made, surely you would have an entire cadre of noble men come together to testify to the truth of an event. Not in this story. God intends to use the feeble, the children, the, the lessers in society to bring a message to the strong. Joseph of Arimathea could buy no more than the tomb that Jesus temporarily inhabited until he blew the top off of it. With all of his riches, a man condemned to be wicked proved to be more righteous than all the religious ruling authorities of his day. When we take a look at this text this morning, let us look at it with great hope and fervor because you will not die to stay dead. You will die to rise again. And in the intermediate state, to be absent from this body is to be present with Christ. Now, some might protest, well, then why don't we hasten the day of our death? Well, because the Bible never tells us to do that. It doesn't tell us to hurry our death that we might be with Christ. It simply says that we are to love our neighbors, to see death as, a, as an awful intruder, but not to be feared ultimately. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of Matthew in another place tells us that we should fear not the one that can harm this body, but the one that can throw our soul in hell. And of course, there's only one that can relegate us to hell, 
And that's the ultimate authority himself. And you'd probably say to me this morning, if you were here to interact with me in person, how in the world could you trust a God that would send people to hell? My answer to you would be very, very simple. God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves there. God will punish us in hell for our sins. True enough, light hath no fellowship with darkness. But it is up to you not to reject the one means that he made for you to spend eternity in heaven. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. How can you spit in his face again by continuing to mock him as the authorities did and the people did during that first holy week? How can you do that? How can you not receive him as Savior? And furthermore, blame him for all of eternity because the highway to heaven that he gave you through his son, you rejected. The message this morning for you as an unbeliever is trust in Jesus for your salvation. If this coronavirus time has taught us anything, it has taught us of our own mortality. It's taught us of the fact that there's something bigger going on than ourselves, that we won't just continue with business as usual all the days of our life. In other words, there is going to be a great change to the flow of world history. It's called the day of the Lord. And we are blessed to have these little blips in time to remind us that there's something greater going on. I'm so thankful that the Lord didn't just end it all because if he'd ended it all with an advent of a crisis like this, I wouldn't have the chance to share the gospel, this opportunity to share the gospel with you, to share what a true Christian is about. At the same time, I don't know that I'm supposed to pray that the Lord would tarry in his return because the way that the Bible ends is with the words Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We're to pray for the return of the Lord. Those two things seem to be kind of intention. My desire for you to be a disciple of Christ and my desire to worship him in his return. And those two bookends are exactly what I want to talk about from this text this morning. First, we're going to see that to our job as Christians is to worship him and want him to come back. Second, briefly, we're going to see that we have a job to testify to the authorities around us. And thirdly, we're going to see that we have a job to make disciples to make disciples until the day in which the Lord Jesus returns in his resurrected body, consummates his kingdom with the resurrection of all of our bodies. So we're going to see those three things. To worship now as we're waiting and wanting, to testify, and then finally, to disciple. So first, let's take it on its parts, to worship. Verses one, verse 1 begins in Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And it says supernatural things took place. There was an earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stones, sat on it. Now you have to look at the other Gospels to get the fuller picture. You have to kind of synthesize them and harmonize them. Matthew's not writing a strict chronology, and he's certainly being selective in the events that he's purporting to tell us about through this account. He's trying to make a, make a point about what our commission is, not trying to be exhaustive with not enough ink and not enough pages in the first century. It was expensive to write a memoir. But Matthew, writing perhaps in the 50s or 60s AD, some 20, 30 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven, he wants us to have an account, particularly for the religious folks and the Jewish folks. He wants the religious folks to have an account that they can look at and have an opportunity to believe that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead and he is the hope for them for all of eternity. Now, with that in mind, Let's understand in verse 2 that Matthew's gospel does not shirk back from the supernatural. 
The supernatural came with Jesus' first coming, and it's going to be evident with Jesus' second coming. There was a great earthquake. There was an angelic appearance, and the appearance is bright and pure, white as snow. And verse 4 says that the guards trembled in fear, and they, they became like dead men at the appearance of the angels. And the angels talked to the women, verse 5, and tells them not to be afraid that Jesus is not dead, but he, is, he has risen, he's rose. And he says, come and see where he was, and then go and tell. And Christianity's always been, that's one of our jobs, come and see, go and tell. It's always been a come and see, go and tell religion. We come and see, we meet the Lord by faith, through his grace, and then we go tell people about it. That's our commission, that's our job in the interim between when we're converted and when he returns or when we die and meet him. And when we die, we do meet him, by the way. I mean, in another gospel, we have an account of criminals being crucified beside Jesus. And one of them came to faith while dying on the cross for his crimes. And he said, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And Jesus looked over at that thief, unlike the other one. We have no account of him saying anything like this to the one that was hell-bound, rejecting him and reviling him. But this former reviler that said, remember me, Jesus said, this very day today you will be with me in paradise. So when we die, if we die because of a virus or any ailment, we have this great assurance based on the testimony of Jesus that he will remember us, that we will be with him in paradise. We have this great assurance of eternal life. So we don't have to be afraid in that way. We come and see the Lord. We go and tell about him. And we know that we have this great assurance of eternal life. And we know we can trust the words of Jesus based on the testimony of his earliest followers because they were willing to die for him. They, they weren't just willing to try to protect and provide for themselves and save their own skin. They were willing to die for him and for the advancement of what he has said is most important. These women don't just acknowledge Jesus as a simple good teacher. They recognize that he's worthy to be worshipped. Look at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus met them, he said to them, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet. They took hold of real physical feet. He's not a ghost. This is not a hallucination. They take hold of his feet and they worship him. Listen, friends, it would be blasphemous for them to worship a non-deity. Jesus is not only claiming to be God, he is being understood to be God by these women. They're understanding him to be deity. This is the God-man. Jesus broke every paradigm known to man in human history. He fulfilled all prophecy and became the Messiah for everyone, everywhere, at all time. And so they, they worshipped him. A little bit afraid, a little bit full of joy too. Those two things are not separate. We can be both afraid, have some fear, and filled with joy and worship. We can be both. It's possible to have fear in our lives and have joy in our lives. These women did. They were a little bit afraid. They were a whole lot joyful, and they worshiped Jesus. One final thing on this first point. Look at chapter 28, verse 9, where it says, Jesus met them, and he said, greetings. It's interesting that in the prior two chapters, this same Greek word that comes translated to us, greetings here, is twice mentioned. Once it's mentioned when Judas betrays Jesus. He offers him greetings and he kisses him and betrays him. Same word, Cairo. Then when Jesus is hanging on the cross and they're making fun of him, they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Remember he had the sign in three languages over his head? Same word used to bring us this Greek 
this gospel in the Greek language, Cairo. Greetings, hail, and now Jesus. His, his first words that are recorded in Matthew, they surely are nothing less than meaningful in their placement. When he says, Cairo, greetings, he's not betraying, he's not mocking, he's comforting them. And he's not comforting them simply as distant followers. He's comforting them as family. Look what he refers to the disciples as. He doesn't call them anything short of family language. Look what it says. It says, verse 10, Go and tell my brothers, greetings, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. (laughs) You ever been betrayed before? Now, we might not say that the treason was as great with Peter as it was with Judas, obviously, but Peter certainly didn't shine during Holy Week, now did he? Remember? He has to be reinstated later. He's... He has denied Jesus three times when Jesus needed him most. He couldn't stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is going to already refer to him as a brother? Tell my brothers they'll see me in Galilee? Listen to me, friends. For those of you out there that are trying to attain your worth in God's eyes through your own merit, and you just keep failing again and again and again, I want to encourage you that Peter could be referred to with family language when he hadn't yet been reinstated. And also, he could be referred to as a brother when, in fact, he hadn't acted very family-like toward Jesus at all. Jesus was left by him to die. In his rejection and alonement, it included the abandonment that he faced on the cross when he uttered that child's prayer from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? Why am I alone? Of course, Jesus knew why he was alone. He prayed like a child as he hung there, helpless as a child, seemingly, refusing to call down legions of holy angels to his defense because he was doing something on that cross for a purpose, and that is for me and for you. So how dare we reject that sacrifice? Let us not reject it. Let's accept it. Let's worship him in spirit and in truth because this Savior here, doesn't just call us to follow him in a bare sense. He calls us to family in a brotherly and sisterly sense. And I would say that's good. But the rejectors of Christ, they've been around since the beginning. And they'll continue to be around until the end. And frankly, afterward, the way that I read the scriptures, the rejectors of Christ are going to blame him for all of eternity. This is an unjust proposition that there's only one way to be saved, they'll say. They'll reject him. And truly, the rejectors were there right at the time of the resurrection. Listen afresh to verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So they go and report to the ruling authorities in Jerusalem during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a few days after Passover, Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, has raised and has risen, and they report to the authorities that should have known what the program was, should have known what was going on, or at least had a sense that this could be a righteous man that could be not a, a Messiah pretender, but the real Messiah. And instead of looking at the signs and surveying them for what the Old Testament said that they might could be, They mislead the governing authorities and the guards. Whether those guards were Jewish or Roman, I don't know. It could have been both. But these guards went into the city, talked to the chief priest, told them what had taken place. And when the elders assembled and took counsel, 
Instead of reconsidering their position, they create a ruse. They create a story. They create a testimony that is false. A false testimony. And the Gospel of Matthew, some 20 years later, just records it almost as an aside in these verses 11 through 15. When, they, when Matthew says of these authorities, they made up the story. And the guards went with it. And, and you might say, well, you might say, why would the guards go with a story like this? Well, the text itself gives us some clues. It says that the elders took counsel, and in verse 12, they gave a sum of money, sufficient sum of money, to the soldiers. So they gave them provision, money. And it says that they told them what to say for this provision, for this sum of money. I want you to tell people that Jesus' disciples came at night and stole him while you were asleep. So a lot of problems with that. First of all, it was a capital offense to fall asleep when you were on watch of a tomb like this. These soldiers could be killed. And we, we know that because of history, but we also know it from this text right here. It says that, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. They would have been in big trouble. It would not have been in their best interest to have testified to falling asleep on the job or whatnot. And so they provide protection and provision. Like what a good husband is supposed to do for a family, protect and provide. They provide protection and provision. What, what, what a good authority is supposed to do for the least of these, the most helpless among us, provide and protect. And they do that in the name of false testimony. Now, I'll tell you today, and this story keeps spreading, I'll tell you today about the, the powers that be, about the authorities, about the governing authorities even. We are at the same time called to respect and honor their authority and obey their authority on the authority of the God's Word from Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. The governing authorities are put in place by God to restrain evil. And at the very same time, we as Christians are the people that always have a healthy skepticism of the motives of governing authorities. Because the beauty of the form of government that we have known in the West is a large, largely a form of government that's for the people and by the people and of the people. And so that dispersion of power is what has kept from power corrupting absolute in its concentrated form. And we are thankful for that. At the same time, we recognize as power coalesces, it becomes more and more likely that its usage is not benevolent but corrupt. And so we as Christians always reserve, not in an anarchist spirit or in a we're going to usher in Christ's kingdom right now before he returns spirit, but we've always reserved the category of civil disobedience. Look at your Bible. Consider Rahab. Rahab civilly disobeyed against the governing authorities in order to help God's people succeed. Look at your Bible and look at the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1 records the story. They refused to kill those babies. They refused to kill those babies. And they civilly disobeyed the Egyptian authorities in order that the Hebrew children might live. We would do well to take care of the little ones too. When our biblically informed consciences, not just on a power trip and a stump speech 
and a give me more money kind of an attitude. But when our biblically informed consciences are violated, we will obey God, not man. We will render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. But when those two do this, God comes first, does he not? Now, in this situation, we have a great opportunity, like the first believers did, to testify to the governing authorities and the powers. Well, how is that? Here's how I think. I told you the first point in this sermon is that our job as Christians, even in a time like this, is to worship and hasten the day of the return of the Lord, right? At the same time, knowing it's not coming yet. That's my third point, is we're making disciples until he comes. It's like we have this weird tension between wanting him to come and wanting him to wait. Because, you know, we want him to come, but we want more people to be saved. In the middle here, I'm talking about this testimony, because that's the way the text takes us, I think. And I want to say to you that we, like the citizens of Rome and those that didn't have citizen status in the first century, we are to be the best, most obedient citizens. We're supposed to be that way cheerfully obeying the governing authorities. We are supposed to do that until such time as they ask us or try to make us do something that violates our Christianly informed conscience. Like, say, kill babies or something. Let's just use that biblical example from earlier. And when that happens, it is then our obligation to obey God over man and to take our seat in the back seat of that cruiser with those cuffs on and be joyful at the, whole, at the same time we're afraid, testifying to the truth of the gospel, even to the authorities that are carrying out works that are contrary to things that we can be involved in with our consciences. That's what it means to be Christian. It has meant that, it has meant that from the beginning. One of our jobs is to be willing to suffer according to the sovereignty of God. Now, people are just fine with the civil disobedience. We're good with that in our pride, right? That's the American way. We'll stick it to the man. But what about suffering? Are you willing to smile and bear testimony to the powers that be? Because here's what Acts chapter 6 says. It's when word and prayer goes out and when we live our faith, priests get saved. This text itself is preceded by a testimony at the end of Matthew 27. You can read about it. Where even before Jesus resurrected from the dead, because of the miracles surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and because of the manner that Jesus took to the cross, remember he prayed for his adversaries, Father, forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. Because of that, a Roman soldier got saved. Hey, truly, this is the Son of God. Truly, it is. Look at Matthew 27, 54 for the information. We are to live like the Messiah in such a way that they would say, I really think that's the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That's how we're supposed to live. So it's, it's not that we don't have a category for civil disobedience. It's just that it's extremely limited. And when it is employed, we are to do it for the hope of salvation for the very one that puts you in cuffs. Do you understand that? Because if you don't, you don't have a grip on this text in light of the entire canon of Scripture. And I'm trying to help you understand it today. That takes us through our second point in verse 15. This testimony or this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, to the day of the writing of the gospel and to this day, that the supernatural doesn't happen or that the resurrection can't be true. It's been spread to this day. And this is, there's no time in this sermon for apologetics and reasons why it could be true. I'm simply saying we testify that it is true and that we point you to Jesus as a follower, to, as a, for you to be a follower of Jesus. This is our testimony in life and death. So our first point 
of importance, our job opportunity as a Christian is to worship and wait for the day of the Lord to come. Our second is to testify, even in times of suffering, even when lies are swirling about the Christian faith and we're being asked to participate in things that we can't. Thirdly, we are called in the interim, in this time in which we live, we are commissioned, we are mandated to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Remember, it said, it, Jesus said to the women, Tell my brothers that I'll meet them on a mountain in Galilee. Tell them to go. That's very interesting language. And it's coming back to us in these final verses. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples, remember one had killed himself, Judas. So there's 11 left. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So they go there. It's very interesting that they go there. It says in verse 17, And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's likely that there was more than just the 11 there. It's unlikely that the 11 doubted at this point, especially since the events of doubting Thomas and touching the nail prints and the scars had already taken place by this time. It's likely that over this 40-day period, this time period between the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Feast at Pentecost, it's likely that in Jesus' 40 days worth of experiences that this one fits somewhere in the middle. And it's likely that the crowd was larger than the 11. When they went to Galilee, they were on this mountain. We don't know which mountain, but this group of peoples here. It could have been the same mountain that Jesus delivered the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount from, which is recorded early in the Gospel of Matthew. And I've been to Israel and actually stood where we think the Sermon on the Mount could have been given and looked at where people would have stood and where Peter's primacy is and the sea and listened to how the voice would have refracted through that area. And I can imagine in my own mind from that experience what it would have been like for Jesus to give the Sermon on the Mount or to return to give this sermon. Galilee in this region would have been 100 miles north of Jerusalem, but it would have been a 120-mile trek because most Jewish people wouldn't go through Samaria. It would have been a trip to get up there before the days of planes, trains, and automobiles. And when they did meet on that mount in Galilee, they were listening to Jesus post-resurrection to set the scene, just as they listened to him pre-resurrection to begin his earthly ministry. When Matthew says he preached in Galilee of the Gentiles, to quote Isaiah 9.1, and Matthew chapter 4 says that he preached and he healed and he taught He preached the gospel of the kingdom from likely this very same mount or one like it in Galilee. And he now meets with them again after the fact. But please, before you go to after the fact, think afresh about before the fact. Jesus preached this gospel of the kingdom, giving us teachings like blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor in spirit. He gave us these teachings about comfort during anxiety and how to live the faith and the the Lord's Prayer. He gave us these teachings, and he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and he became famous in Galilee, north of Jerusalem. That's what got him killed, going to Jerusalem. He became famous up there. People came to see him because he cared for the people. He took care of the people, and he taught them with authority, the gospel of Matthew says. And namely, he preached the gospel to them, the good news of salvation after you die, of being saved of spending eternity with him. He preached this message from that mount, and now he returns there with the disciples to give them a final emphasis instruction. 
It's just the way Matthew ends his gospel. It's not all that's said during the 40 days of, experience, of, experience, of, uh, of appearances of Jesus and experiences that the disciples have. Truly, it's not. You can read Luke and Acts and John to see more. But this is how Matthew leans the plane of his gospel. Back on the mountain in Galilee, 100 miles north of Jesus' crucifixion, he, he lands the plane of this gospel by going there, and you got people worshiping him as deity, because he is, and this is the commission he gives them. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all mine. The crucified, resurrected King Jesus, it's all authority. The punchline of Matthew. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples. That is the Christian command. The imperative is to make disciples until the Lord returns. And we worship him, but we make disciples too. We actually help make disciples by worshiping. It's interesting when we gather on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, something that is, we're longing for because it's been temporarily suspended. We worship him and we make disciples, kind of in one but John Piper says it very aptly and helpfully when he said it like this. Worship and discipling or mission is happening right now. But one of them will occur only in heaven. Think about it. Right now we have worship and discipling or worship and mission, to use a different word for discipling. People are being converted. We have a commission to share that gospel with people. The one that Jesus preached in Galilee pre-resurrection and the one he gave to us to preach post-resurrection. We have a commission. We have a message to share of life-changing proportion. It must be shared. And at the same time, we're supposed to pray, come Lord Jesus, come, knowing that as we hasten the day of the Lord, as we pray for the events that are described in John's apocalypse in Revelation, events that are described at the end of the Bible. As we're praying for that to come, we need to understand there's a shelf life for mission, but there isn't for worship. Worship is eternal. Well, that's good news and it's bad news, depending on who you're talking to. For you believers, it's good news because all the struggles and the pains that we go through to share this gospel with people, knowing that it's oftentimes rejected, sometimes accepted, all the struggles that we have, not only to make disciples, but to be discipled, right? It's painful to be corrected and instructed and, and, and steered in the faith that leads to eternal life. It's, it's painful. All that pain is going to be gone. The Bible says there will be no more tears in heaven. Every tear will wipe away. There won't be a virus. We won't have bacterial infections. There won't be a need for hospitals. It's going to be heaven, folks. It's going to be amazing. Mainly because Jesus is there, the king of the universe. But he cares and heals his children. And we become his by faith. We believe this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. But I have to instruct you, unbeliever, that what awaits for you is no more opportunity. The absence of mission and disciple making will be profound. And you may blame him forever, but you'll never conquer him again. He won't be hung up again. He will not be mocked. He'll be our Lord and Savior forever, and we will treasure him. And he will banish you to eternal hell because when you had the opportunity, you didn't take it. This is your opportunity today.
pray to receive Christ. Call on his name and be saved. Trust him as the leader and the savior of your life. Matthew's gospel begins with Emmanuel. God is with us. He's with his people. Jesus' very name, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. I want you to know those promises can be for you. Just receive him. He can save you. He will. And he's with you all this life and certainly forevermore. Matthew begins and ends that way, frankly. Chapter 1, he's with us. Chapter 28, he's with us. He's particularly with us when we're taking this message to you. He is so with us. Look at how it ends. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get back to baptizing real quick, folks. We're going to baptize them in a singular name. Name is singular. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the Trinitarian formation. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as part of disciple-making, and we also teach. We teach all to all. We teach you to obey all that the Lord has commanded, everything that he brought to the apostles' minds, the things that are written in these scriptures. We teach you to obey the commandments, and we make disciples in baptizing and teaching, and we go. That's part of making disciples. We support missions. Pray for our missionaries right now. Pray for them. Because it's a difficult time for them as they're trying to take the gospel to people. And they're having to also battle quarantines, staying in place, not being able to go. And so pray for them, but also support them. Support them financially. Support them with kind words and cards. Make notes. Send it to them. Support them. We must support the going, the making disciples. And we also must be made disciples right here where we are in our community, and we, we are making disciples that are keeping or observing the commands of Jesus. That's what we do. And the promise is, is that he is always with us to the end of this age, particularly with us, when we are voluntarily joining in this commission that he gave his apostles on that mountain in Galilee during the 40 days of his appearances before his ascension, and that he gives to us. It's for us It's how this particular gospel ends. It's that the gospel continues, the gospel of the kingdom. And we preach it, and we preach it more still, because it is our hope in life and death. I'm going to read you a little quote from, let me just say, it's from the final days of Jesus by Justin Taylor and Andreas Kostenberger. But let me just tell you, I've been doing some devotions on our church members page for this week, the eight days of Holy Week, and it's been such a joy to be able to, to go through this week by going with you, by using the resource of the final days of Jesus. And I just want to share how they end their book, because it's a great way to end this sermon. And I do commend that book to you, the final days of Jesus. And here's what they write in the end. They say, will you and I believe? Will we place our faith once and for all in the one who came and died and rose again so we can be forgiven and have eternal life? If so, our Easter has dawned and God's morning star has arisen in our hearts. For true believers, every day is Easter. And we can celebrate Easter joyfully, thanking God for his amazing salvation, regardless of circumstances, right? We can thank him for his amazing salvation. We can worship him, hasten the day of his return, share the gospel, testify to the powers that be, do it with a smile on our face even when we're afraid. We can celebrate it because... 
thanking God for his amazing because of his amazing salvation, and we can look forward expectantly to the day when the Lord will return and summon us to spend eternity with him for his glory and our eternal happiness. Amen.